Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined as always by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings in California. And we have a wonderful guest with us today, Paul Justison, who we're going to get to in one minute. Really, this is a, a great, great show. Rob, how are you doing? How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, Thanksgiving was great. Great to hang out with the family. We just got back from Hawaii. Everything is fantastic. Couldn't be more excited. We had a, a lovely trip and uh, happy to be here. If nothing else, to talk about psychedelics today. As you know, one of my favorite conversations in the world and nothing I like more than discussing psychedelics with other people that have uh, had the opportunity to use them as liberally as I have. So let's get the show on the road, man. Let's talk, let's talk psychedelics. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, I was just going to say, I have to shield myself from that bronze tan you're exhibiting. It's uh, very, very impressive for a guy our age to come back looking that good. But uh, whatever the trick is, man, you pulled it off. So absolutely. Hope, hope all of our, our, our listeners had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And, and yes, let's dive right in. The topic today is psychedelics. And Dan, let's get the music rolling, will you please? Okay, well, yes, we are talking psychedelics today. Uh, that is The Grateful Dead from uh, March 24th, 1993, uh, at what my buddies and I would call the Dean Dome in Chapel Thrill, North Carolina, the party capital of the world, according to my good friend, Dr. Z, who may have been at that show, actually. And uh, they break out Lucy in the Sky with diamonds. When I was at the uh, New Year's shows run in 1984 when they broke out Day Tripper, everybody for years was talking about Lucy in the Sky with diamonds, the dead... Of course, the Grateful Dead have to play it. How can they not play it? It's the ultimate LSD song uh, for sure. And then all of a sudden uh, in 93, boom, the, the, the boys break it out. And the next thing you know, they're playing it all over the place. And uh, I don't know about you, Rob, but I love that song when the Beatles do it. And I love it even more when Jerry covers it. Yeah, I love it when they both, no matter who plays it, I love that song. And I'll tell you that specific show that you just played was one of my great regrets as I lived in Chapel Hill at that exact time in 1992 and I left Chapel Hill for spring tour with the Grateful Dead and went and saw every every one of the March 92 shows made my way back out to Utah and you know I think I caught like 17 out of 20 shows in a row and did not go back the next year. I had a whole crew of friends in Chapel Hill and they announced those dates like you're definitely coming right and uh, I ended up going to Alaska to ski instead and I missed those shows and they broke out LSD. So um, a big miss for me uh, on that one. Yeah, well, you know, look, that happens and uh, uh, many opportunities to see it again. And in other places, uh, Phil and his band have played it quite a lot in recent years. It's just a, a, a great tune and it really helps uh, set the mood for what we're going to talk about today. Um, and we'll have a little more music in a little while. We're not focusing on any show today, just a, a few random Grateful Dead tunes that uh, have a nice LSD uh, overtone to them. Uh, but our guest today, and uh, what we're really excited to do, is talk with our friend Paul Justison, who is here. Paul, welcome very much to the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. And happy Thanksgiving. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Paul, I, there's so many different ways, I suppose, I could explain to people who you are. It, it centers and it evolves around psychedelics to some degree. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you uh, give us the, the lowdown on, on what it is you do and how it is you came to be doing it. All right. Well, well, I think the spark that got me on the show is I just I finished a novel and it's just been released. It's called Lost and Found in the 60s. And it's what you call auto fiction. In fact, I originally started out as a memoir, but I realized after a while there are some people who are very close to me I didn't feel comfortable writing about. So I, I decided to switch to fiction, to a novel, which gave me a lot of freedom, uh, freedom to play with the characters, uh, freedom to play with a timeline and freedom to increase the tension and not though in any way to take away from historical accuracy because I really wanted to 
write a novel that let people feel what it was like to live in Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. And let me just jump in right there if I can, Paul, because sure. in fact, that was, you were that guy. You're, you're not just writing about it. And that's, I'm sure you're going to go with your story, but you were actually living there. I did. I uh, first uh, got to the Haight in late 66. I dropped out of high school. I had a very difficult time in high school. I was actually a very good student, but I had many other problems in high school. I was quite radical, protesting the Vietnam War. I had a difficult home situation. And then I had a terrible breakup with my girlfriend. All of that. I was, oh, I can't deal with this anymore. Where will I go? Well, Haight-Ashbury. And so I went. What uh, year was this? Uh, this would have been late 66 when I first got there, late 1966. Uh, and I struggled for a bit at first. Uh, but then I, I got a job in the post office, which allowed me a lot of free time to go to concerts and to very much enjoy myself right there in the middle of Haight-Ashbury. I lived most of the time at 2018 Fell Street, um, which is just fronting on the panhandle. And after a while, which, which helped me write much of the story, I had a very um, serendipitous meeting. Um, a friend of mine, well, back then, many of the chemists did not have tablet machines. So when they made LSD, they couldn't make tablets because they didn't have the machines. So they would buffer the acid with uh, some kind of filler, and then they would have to cap it. And the chemists couldn't do all that by themselves, so they'd have what were called cap parties back in the day. And you'd have to get people who were somewhat together so they wouldn't fuck everything up. So uh, I was invited to one of these because I was kind of known as a somewhat careful guy. That's not, not meaning I wasn't partaking in all the follies that we were having there, but I could be a little more careful than, than most people. So I was invited to one of these. And then it all fell apart because the organizer forgot to hand out gloves. <laughs> because when you're capping LSD, you're sitting there on a table and you've got the powder in front of you, you've got caps, and you're trying to, you know, put it into the capsules. And I was pretty careful. I mean, that's just me. I, I am. And so I was often brushing my fingers off. I mean, I didn't mind getting high on LSD, but I thought I was supposed to do this job. Um, and so after a while, everybody was stoned, and the guy who was, was there was supposed to be responsible. He and I helped solve things a little but. They went off and were stoned, and I was sort of half stoned, a little frustrated. Uh, but I thought, well, I didn't want to make a mess of this. So I just carefully stowed everything, cleaned it up. And the next day, the only one sober and capable of delivering the stuff to the chemist was me. So I met him. We talked. And uh, you mentioned earlier Osley and others. Well, there were other chemists. LSD was not an extraordinarily difficult thing to make. And there were some chemists who stayed way out of the limelight uh, because they didn't want to be in the limelight. I mean, that's one failing of Owsley. He was a great guy, but he brought a lot out of himself. Yes, he put himself so much out there. So at any rate, I began working with this chemist along with a few other people because they'd make the acid. And then they'd have a quantity, depending on how many grams they made. One gram's 4,000 tabs. Uh, how they needed people to distribute it to other mid-level dealers who might get 500 tabs and then would sell it. So I became one of the distributors. And so that was my, uh, how should I say, my experience as a psychedelic revolutionary, or given that the legalization is moving forward with uh, psychedelics all over the country, certainly psilocybin first, and hopefully LSD at some point, maybe I should just call myself a pioneer. So I got so many questions there. Oh boy, <laughs> this is gonna be fun. Uh, look, <laughs> first, first of all, like you know, this is uh, it sounds like pre-blotter paper. If you're actually you know pressing tabs and, and doing it that way, like how many micrograms you know per, per tablet? Like what were you guys doing? When you say 4,000 um, 4, nits. Well, we were. Well, the, later on, the chemists were making tablets. This point again, we were just just take think of a vitamin capsule. Yeah, yeah. They were giving us. Gel caps. Yeah, we were just making caps. The The goal was 250 micrograms per uh, capsule. That was the goal. Wow. Wow. So this is this is no nonsense. Like one tab and you were, you were pretty darn high. Yeah. No, well, that, nobody back then wanted half a tab. I mean, there was no microdosing back in the day. Oh, I know. But even, even when you think about like, you know, like Goonie Birds in the 80s, you know, as far as blotter paper, those had like the 125, like right in the, um, right in the, the propeller, right? So like a standard tab of LSD on blotter paper, at least like during the whole time that I was, you know, buying sheets or buying 10 packs, 
like 100 micrograms a dose was, was considered to be pretty standard, right? Like a 250 microgram dose, like that's enough to, to get you pretty high. I mean, it's, it's not like you're doing like a pinky print full of crystal, but you know, it's a 250 microgram dose is you're, you're, you're high. That's no, definitely. That's, I mean, that's what people expected back then. So, so you're handling this stuff, you're handling without gloves, which by the way, like when you say, I mean, the, the casual user out there, when Paul says he was quote stoned, I think that is a gross understatement if you're handling crystal, um, you know, without gloves. So, <laughs> Well, we weren't handling crystal. It was already buffered. It was brought to us. I mean, you know, a gram of LSD is pretty small. And you've got to buffer that out so that you've got powder. So we weren't handling it. If we were handling the crystal, my Lord. We <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know people that have made that mistake. <laughs> you know, when you say you're the only one that wasn't stoned enough the next day to be able to make this run, I mean, I've got to think that, you know, anyone that's handling even buffered powder, you know, without gloves is, is probably pulling a fair amount of uh, inadvertent micrograms into their system. I, I was, I remember I was, uh, I was, I had a buzz, but again, I was, you know, it's just, we all have different personalities. I was a careful guy. Well, I, I know that um, during my heyday of eating lots of LSD, your, your tolerance would also go up over time with, uh, with, with frequent use. So there was times that, you know, like a 10 strip would be appropriate, whereas other times like, you know, a tab would be appropriate. It all depended on, you know, kind of where you were in, in your, in your daily usage. Yeah, but let's not kid ourselves too, because even with that, I, I quickly discovered that you know, there's no way you think you can, I mean, you think you can, but there's no way you can ever accurately, whether I don't care if it's on blotter, I don't care if it's mushrooms, I don't care if it's all distilled and, you know, put out in these candy bars that I'm finding these days. You do one, uh, you know, one dab, one tab one day and get here and the next day you'll do the same tab and you'll be through the roof. At least that was always my experience. It was always hard to kind of find, you know, a way to make sure I was having a consistent experience. You know, well, in, in my time, back in the day, we're talking about 66, 67, 68, uh, you know, we had no manual as to what to do. It was all folk wisdom. It was all what your friend did and what you, what, but the folk wisdom then was 250. Great. You have a great trip. You don't take any more acid for a few days. You know, and the people that did, because there were people that did, they were getting a little further out now and not coming back. So, I mean, there really was a feeling amongst many of the people, no, I don't want to do it two days in a row. No, I don't. I'd love it, but no, once, take a break. Well, it's very funny that you say that, though, no, no guides or references, because I'll share this story, but when... One of my sons decided that he wanted to try mushrooms for the first time. His answer was to go online and start researching how much mushrooms should you eat, you know, to, to have a decent trip. So whatever information he got, he got, and he and his buddy thought they were going to sit on the back porch one morning and eat some mushrooms and, you know, get up and walk around. And I came home a few hours later and they were just sitting there. <laughs> I said, I guess, I guess it didn't, I guess the research didn't really work. And I said, no, I guess it didn't really work. Did it? Um, so, you know, again, it's, I, I just tell people, you know, start low and, you know, you, whatever. Once you're up there, there's no way to come back down until it's all over. Yes, that's true. And it may take time. <laughs> so other questions for you, you know, when you were doing this, LSD was still legal. Well, it, you, know, I, you know, I forget the exact date. It, through much of 66, it was still legal. At some point in 67, it was illegal. I forget exactly when. I think it may have been at the turn of the year, 66 to 67. Well, I remember the classic picture of, uh, of Neil Cassidy on the day that LSD became illegal with just the most bummed out like facial expression of like, ah, shit, the fun's over. You know, it's, uh, but it really wasn't for him. It was just beginning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, he hadn't gotten on the bus yet. But the, the reality was, for a, quite a while, it was still very difficult for the police to penetrate the scene. Uh, you know, the police had been... You know, raiding the black community for pot, and they've been raiding other, but the hippies were totally new for them, you know, and getting an undercover cop to act like a, a counterculture guy was not something that they were really equipped or had figured out how to do. Uh, and it wasn't, in, from my, you know, knowledge or experience, that they really were coming down hard in the area, in Haight-Ashbury, until they began to arrest people by accident and then pressure them. And some of them would, you know, become stool pigeons, whatever you want to call them. And they also later on, in fact, I remember this in um, late 68, uh, there was an extraordinary, a very large bust because the cops found somebody that could somehow make believe he was hippie and send them in. And he kept 
asking on the street, could he get 5,000 tabs? Could he get 5,000 tabs? And when I heard of it, people I knew heard of it said, no, 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 no one goes on the street asking for 5,000 tabs. This is not right. Don't touch it. But a lot of greedy people did, and they all got busted. So, I mean, the cops would come up with different strategies. But in the early days, they just they didn't know what to do. They couldn't, you know, they made it illegal. But how did they catch anybody? But, but, but this was coming on the heels. I mean, like, unless you know the history of, of LSD, people don't realize that, like, you know, there was no LSD really. I mean, like Hoffman invented, I guess, in 38, uh, but nothing really happened for years after that. But it wasn't until MKUltra happened at, um, at, at Stanford where they started doing all the experiments and actually recruiting people to come in for the CIA's program, which is where, you know, Kesey first ate LSD and it's where Garcia first ate LSD. And there's a handful of people that participated in the Stanford program that coming out of MKUltra was really when, like, the explosion of, of psychedelics happened in the Bay Area. Is that right? That's, that's my understanding as well. Uh, and there are many other, there are some people that were still in, that are around today that were involved in those programs. Uh, James Fadiman, who's the founder of the Microdose Movement, I believe had some connection with those and was there uh, doing LSD experiments, and getting volunteers and doing and recruiting people in the hate. I don't know that it was connected with the MK Ultra. It may have been some other offshoot, but there were still, you know, in late 66, there were still people able to do experiments with LSD. And they were getting, um, generating interest in it. I mean, at, at that point, like the whole idea of like tune in, turn on and drop out hadn't even been thought up yet in 66. And like, you know, no, it, it was 66 when Larry did that. Was it 66? I think it was 66. Okay. Yeah, I believe pretty sure. Yeah. Because the BN, the BN was, uh, earlier that year was, that was his big thing that when he came on stage, yeah. but I know like turn on to 65, 66 is when, you know, Ken Kesey was still living, uh, in, in, uh, La Honda. And was still, you know, like wiring his woods for sound, you know, outside of Palo Alto before he moved up to Oregon. And like the original sort of pranksters, you know, pre like um, pre uh, acid tests in, in San Francisco, you know, pre bus, you know, uh, pre further bus cruising around the country and, you know, sort of turning on the, uh, the masses. But like 65, 66, I look at, as you said, like the world didn't know what to make of LSD at that time. Like, they, like you guys were when you say you were a pioneer. I don't think that, that that really resonates with the way it should. Like there, there was nothing before that that was happening like that. And like all of a sudden this like revolution hit of people getting high and seeing the world in a completely different way where they're never going to see the world the same way again afterwards. I mean, like to this day, I credit LSD for like so many amazing things in my life as far as like I would not know otherwise, but for, you know, the experimentation I did with psychedelic drugs as a young guy that like I, I see everything differently to, to, to this day, and I'll never see things the same way again, right? And that, like, I think there's a revolution of, of young people that were, like, getting to experience that primarily by guys like you and the chemists you were working with. So, I mean, first of all, thank you. Second of all, like, well, talk about sort of the, the experience of being there on the ground floor when, like, a complete change in, like, mentality was taking place uh, in, in the West Coast. You know, I, I talk about that more, I think, in retrospect. <laughs> and there, at the time, it was just so exciting. It was what we were doing. I wasn't thinking about it. I was very young. I mean, I was most of the time I was in the hate, the period we're talking about. I, I was 17 and 18. I mean, it was a little advanced for my age, but I was young. I was na a little naive. I had some good skill sets because I was careful. I was organized. Not everybody else was. That's why, really why the chemists liked me. I was, I was on time. You know, not everybody's could do that. Uh, I wouldn't on time if I had taken 250 milligrams, but I didn't do that on my working days. So I, I want to just pick up on another thing you said, though, uh, that it really opened the consciousness for so many people. I don't think the anti-war movement would have grown to the large level that it did without so many of those people involved in that movement having taken LSD and then thinking about war, thinking about napalm being dropped on people. I mean, it just... It, it, it really engendered a total different think about how do I participate in this country? Maybe I'm not going to drop out, but I'm not going to participate in that war. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons really the drug war started under Nixon is he felt they were losing so much of the population because of this. And the people speaking out against the war were because of LSD. So they would attack the black community for drugs to put them down because they didn't want the Black Panthers, et cetera. And they would attack the counterculture because they wanted to put that movement down. 
They didn't want the change in consciousness. That's true. I think that's very true. And that's why all of these people who were, as you say, pioneers in the movement, you know, are really to be applauded, right? I, I, marijuana is kind of a messy story. If we, you, know, you really go back through American history and, you know, try and trace how it got to be where it got to be. But everybody knew about marijuana, right? It's like you said, like Rob says, marijuana had been around forever. It just was a matter of what your outlook was on it, whether it was an enlightened outlook or whether it was a, you know, a moral and, you know, you'll go to hell type of outlook or somewhere in between. And, you know, people could form their own opinions about it, but at least it was something brief for madness was, may have been crazy, but at least somebody was acknowledging that there's marijuana out there and they were, you know, talking about it on whatever level. You didn't have a comparable movie being made. And I mean, now, I guess if you look at some, you know, really nouveau art people who took the whole tripping experience and tried to make a movie out of it, you know, you don't have that. You know, it's it's not steeped in, in anybody's history or culture because it's it, like, as Rob says, I mean, I mean, I guess if you want to talk about peyote and other things that Native Americans were doing and, and other cultures around the world who were taking various substances that would cause psychedelic effects of one kind or another. But those were always, you know, I, I think of that initially you know, in, in terms of the movie Billy Jack, which I was a really young kid when that came out, but that was all about him and, you know, tripping and finding his own way. And we just liked it because he went around beating the hell out of people. And we thought that was really cool. But, you know, I mean, it was hard. It, it was hard to understand. And, you know, what was really the message was about LSD. I, I, I think at the time, probably just interpreted it as they were smoking pot because I wouldn't have really understood anything more than that, you know, and I, now, you know, it's no, my kids, everybody knows about it. It's I mean, everybody hears about it. It's out there. And I, and I'm actually very happy about that because it means it's coming back. Right. We, I make now that I'm older, right. You make jokes about the teenagers and, but you know, well, if the teenagers are in it, they must not think, you know, that it's very, we're very cool or whatever, but you know, they love it and they, they want to dive right into it too. And I think for a lot of kids these days, it really resonates in a certain way. You know, it, I, I don't think it's been easy to grow up as a child in the last 20 to 30 years. And, you know, the way the world has changed and the introduction of social media and all the stuff that's, you know, really been, you know, just piled upon on them. And psychedelics speak to humans in a way that's universal across all timelines. You know, we, 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 we all have problems. They may be different problems depending on what era we're in, but everybody has anxieties or stresses or whatever. And, and you know, to see the way that this can, you know, I agree with Rob, so many of my most important life decisions uh, I, I sit and wonder how different they would have been had I never not gone, if I had never gone down that road, if I had never experimented and tried and it, not the kind of thing I wanted to turn to my kids and say, Hey kids, you go off and do it too. Uh, but when they were the appropriate age, you know, and they came back and said that they were experimenting with it, I thought it was kind of cool. and would sit down and talk with them to see if their experiences tracked with mine. And, you know, it, in some ways, no, of course not. But in, in other ways, yeah, kind of similar, you know, the, 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 the realizations you make and the things that you think you finally discovered that you never realized before, you know, it's, 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 it's life-changing. I wonder if I could pick up on something you mentioned, the movie Reefer Madness. I, uh, uh, I don't remember if that's exactly the movie, but when I was in high school, uh, earlier freshman, sophomore, I remember we all had to watch this movie. <laughs> it was black and white. Uh, and these kids would smoke pot and the girls would immediately go out and become prostitutes. And the guys would immediately get a gun and go hold up a, hold up a bank and maybe get shot, you know, something like that. It, it was, these movies were total propaganda, yeah. but right. what it did though, because when you then smoke pot and no, the, girl, the girls didn't go become prostitutes. No, all I wanted to do was relax and maybe have something good to eat or maybe cuddle more with my girlfriend. There was nothing wrong with it. And so the messaging, I, who trusted the government? After you'd watched those movies and smoked a few joints, you wouldn't trust anything the government said. And so if they were saying LSD is now illegal, you say, so what? So was those pot. It's fine with me. So I, I don't know. The government's handling of all of this has been, been atrocious. Uh, and it still is, and it's only local initiatives that really are moving us in, in a better direction. Uh, and I'm very happy for that. Uh, here in uh, Oakland, where I live, our city council made um, psilocybin. Uh, uh, well, they, they can't make it legal, but they made it something that the police can't not supposed to spend any time on. And Colorado has 
passed a law, and I know Oregon has a law uh, decriminalizing psychedelics. So it's happening at the local level, and there are other. There, so there are many more pioneers now that are the pioneers of making it legal. There are, and each generation has to have their group that's willing to take it on to the next level. And you know, it's nice to see that you know that 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 this kind of thing continues. And look, I'm, I'm a big, huge believer in it, and I think that it should always be available. Although I will confess that I, I have some doubts. You know, I, I have a hard time imagining a dispensary where you can walk in and buy LSD or where you can walk in and buy psilocybin and, you know, whatever limited quantities they'll let you buy it in. But basically, you know, let's say 10 hits of LSD or five hits of LSD or whatever, or whatever it is. And then, okay, thanks. I'll go see you later. It, it, it's a drug that I think is very good, very important and, and very useful for people to try. But I, I recognize that, you know, some of us who enjoy these kinds of things, it's like roller coasters, right? If you like a roller coaster, it doesn't matter how tall it is. You love the roller coaster. If you hate roller coasters, you know, the side of thought of even getting on a small one can really scare the hell out of you. And I think that when you have something that, you know, that causes a psychedelic effect, we have to be able to account for that. And that's where the concept to me of microdosing comes into play. And, you know, you have experts who are giving people proper dosages for what will work for them in an environment and a surrounding that will allow them to experience it in a positive way, or at least as much as possible. Um, and, and I'm all for that. And, you know, I mean, yes, I, I you know, maybe with psychedelics, I, you know, like parents with alcohol, they say, you know, we can drink it. You can't, you're not smart enough. You know, and I wanted to say that about pop with my kids. And then I realized now nah, that doesn't work, but you know, maybe, maybe psychedelics are important enough, right. Where you have to say, I, it's, it's, I'm glad that it's out there. And yes, I admit that I, I, somebody handed me a dose. I had no idea what dose it was. And, you know, and I tried it and, and had a great time, but I, I, I just wondering what your thoughts are, you know, in terms of a society where marijuana is smoked so freely, can you imagine a society uh, where psychedelics are equally as available and their use is as pervasive? Well, you know, I, I think we can, I think we ought to be open to uh, experience and the evidence you know, other countries are legalizing in different ways. The Portugal experience is something to look at. I haven't followed it recently, but they basically decriminalized all drugs. Uh, my, my personal feeling is, is somewhat akin to yours. I mean, I, LSD is a much more powerful drug than psilocybin. <laughs> There's no question, especially if you're taking 250 micrograms. Uh, and I don't see a problem with uh, that it being legal, but you have to get a prescription from someone who's uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist who's trained. I don't see a problem with that. Psilocybin to me is a much uh, safer drug. I mean, I, I'll give you one of my psilocybin tales. I, I had to go to my draft physical in 1968, and uh, I, I was lucky I had not changed my address with the draft board, which wasn't something that was on my mind. Uh, and so I had to report to my physical in uh, uh, spring of 68 um, in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and already by that time, if you'd gone to your physical in New York City or Oakland, which Oakland was the place in the Bay Area, wherever you were in the Bay Area, you went to Oakland, uh, you could pull any kind of trick. And by then, they no, you were off to Vietnam. You were drafted. But I was lucky. I got to go to Phoenix, where it's much less sophisticated. And they had, the proportion of freaks in San Francisco, in, in Arizona, was much less. So I, I had to strategize what I was going to do when I talked with a number of friends. And my strategy was simply I, I checked into a hotel the night before and took a significant dose of psilocybin, knowing that uh, by the morning I would be functional. But as long as I didn't share, uh, you know, clean up and shower and everything, I was my face and everything. I was going to look pretty weird. I was going to look out of it. That was just the natural reaction from taking psilocybin uh, and not, you know, trying to piece myself together. Well, I guess I may as well tell the whole, whole story. So so I, I strategized this pretty much. So I, I went into the draft physical looking like I was still, you know, I didn't wear any underwear purposely, not that I don't wear underwear, but I knew you were going to have to go to a through a physical. And so they got very upset when we had to change into underwear and I didn't have any. Then I had to go around the physical wearing my jeans, uh, getting grief from all the other potential draftees most of the time. But thankfully, I am 6'5", and back then I was a little in shape, so I didn't get too much grief. Um, 
and I just played with them. You know, I had a, a I had to go to the audiology test, you know, and so I was supposed to respond to things. And instead, I just made up this ditty in my mind, Ho Ho Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh, and everything. Whoops. I was getting excited as if I was back there tapping on the thing. I'd hit the min, hit the button with every min. I, I played with them on the, would do the optometry test. I just kept playing with them. I love this. And uh, <laughs> finally I got sent in to see the psychiatrist. <laughs> and uh, he knew exactly what I was doing. And he just played with me for a while. But in the end he said, look, I don't want you in the army. You'll probably sabotage things. So 4F. So I got my 4F and partly credited to uh, taking psilocybin. And I purposely didn't take LSD because the next day I would probably not be functional. And I wanted to at least, and then they, who knows, they'd tell me to come back in two weeks or something. So I, it, it worked. And, um, you know, it, and my experience with psilocybin that night, was, I remember it was really quite something. Uh, I, I, it was very enjoyable. And eventually I went to sleep. I had the number of alarm sets, like <laughs> make it to the physical. So, I mean, you can use psychedelics for different purposes. I love that. Okay. That is, uh, <laughs> that's not sure that that's what I'd necessarily recommend to people, but I certainly, uh, I love it in your circumstance. And that that's, you know, what better way to just go to the army and say, shove it, you know, here I am. And I know it, you know, it, we all know it and too bad. Well, it worked. And um, to me, it was an immoral war. Whatever I did to get out of it was right. I think most wars are immoral wars. Rare that we find one that you say it's a, a good moral ground to, uh, to, to go kill people. Hey, so shifting gears a little bit, you know, being in the hate 1966, you know, height of kind of a revolution in, in consciousness and changing. It was also a revolution in, in music. Right, and it wasn't just you know obviously we're the Deadhead Canvas show, so we're, we're big you know proponents of the Grateful Dead, but at that time you know that was the emergence of Big Big Brother and the Holding Company. It was the emergence of Jefferson Airplane. It was um, Quicksilver Messenger Service. It was Moby Grape. It was the Sons of Champlin. It was you know uh, beginning days of Santana was you know right around the corner. Hendrix was still playing there. Uh, Monterey Pop was happening. You know there, there's. There was a ton of stuff happening there between what Chet Helms was doing with the family dog at the Avalon and, you know, pre-early days of Bill Graham. What was it like being in that zone, like, where literally the entire world was kind of, like, tuning into the uh, the, the, the San Francisco sound? Well, it was, it was really exciting. Uh, and, it, and it was also, I'd say, like a community. Many of the theaters or auditoriums we go to were pretty small. Uh, the main two that we would go to in the early days were the Avalon which I looked it up a while ago. I, th I think it only held 400 people. Uh, and the Fillmore, which was a little further away, uh, held maybe 800, 900. That was pretty, I mean, today, I mean, uh, you, uh, you go into stadiums where there's 50,000 people. And back then you'd go uh, to a concert and you may know uh, or, or have seen around most of the people there. So it, it really felt like a, it was not only the sound, but it was people you knew. Uh, so it was just, uh, it was quite a, a community of like-minded people, very peaceful too. Uh, I mean, it was uh, very different from where I'd been in Arizona, where there was there was often a threat of violence for in different just in social settings. Uh, but the hate Ashbury, at least at that time. I mean, later it changed with people coming in and preying on you. You'd go to the conference and conferences, and no one was hassling anybody. It was just extremely peaceful. The music and, uh, you know, and, and again, I think I mentioned earlier when we were talking that one of my regrets, uh, serious regrets, is so many of those. I went very, very high on marijuana and I really can't remember the concerts at all. They're just, they're just, uh, I know I went to them, but I, I don't remember anything from them. But the scene, you know, it was just magical. You, you felt you were in a different world, a different community. And when we'd leave hate Ashbury to go any distance. You, you felt the difference. You felt you were somewhere else. You were out in white breadville. So even within San Francisco city limits, but just outside of the hate Ashbury neighborhood, you're saying that, uh, you know, they had, uh, not, they had the establishment people living, uh, in the rest of the city, huh? Oh yeah. Well, not, not very far. Well, I mean, to, to get from hate Ashbury to the Fillmore, you'd go through the Fillmore, which was then very much a black ghetto, uh, and the relations between the counterculture types and, and the blacks were very good. 
Uh, I mean, there may have been some crazies in, in the black community that would pray, but for the most part, I mean, there was a very clear acceptance that these people aren't racist. They're here. They're coming through our neighborhood to go to a concert. They're not bothering us. We're not bothering them. And, and I think as well, uh, I would say that, you know, there's this whole notion of cool that uh, people had back then. And that came from the black ghetto. That, that didn't, that wasn't invented by the counterculture. I mean, so much of what drove the counterculture wasn't invented by them. It's what we borrowed from, from other places. But the sense of cool, I, I remember uh, going through the Fillmore and seeing blacks get hassled by the police and, and their way of just dealing with it was just, you know, it was just, it's not the old fashioned notion of Uncle Tom. This was totally different. This was just, um, you know, they were on a different plane than the cops. They'd answer the cops, They'd be somewhat polite to them, but they weren't bowing. They weren't, not at all, nothing. So it it was nice being next to um, the Fillmore in that sense. And I remember so many times I'd drive across the Bay Bridge and coming back, you know, you had to pay, you know, toll coming across it. And there was a thing back then to pay for the person behind you. And you'd pick out people. You'd pick out blacks with hair and you'd pay for them. And then when you're going across the bridge, everybody waves back and forth. Or, or sometimes, uh, in another way, you pick up somebody who looked really uptight and you get in front of them and pay for them. So I don't know. I'm going off on stories. So bring me back whenever you want. I'm, I'm, I'm getting lost going back to the day. Well, outside of just the music, you know, the other part that I look at during that period is, um, you know, Ron and Jay Thalen, I think it just opened up the psychedelic shop at that period. Uh, yeah. You know, you also had, you know, the great uh, artists, you know, whether it was uh, Stanley Mouse or Alton Kelly or, or, or uh, Moscoso, you know, there was a handful of uh, Rick Griffin, you know, all these guys were totally changing the way you look at art and kind of the psychedelic um, uh, work that you could actually put inside art that now has been picked up by, you know, some amazing artists that, that are alive today that I think, you know, that do poster art or do other, you know, psychedelic art that, that owe a great deal to these early pioneers that were all right in your neighborhood at the time. You know, tell us tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I don't know how much she went into the psychedelic shop when it first opened, but I think that was you know relatively groundbreaking at the time as well, as well as Alan Cohn's work. I think on um, on some local publications. Actually, actually, the place I remember actually more is the Print Mint. Uh, that was fascinating. That's where all the posters were hung up, and you'd buy posters. It was right on Haight Street. I think there was a little counter in the middle, and there's a counter in the back, but the walls were all covered with all the posters you were talking about. And that's where you could go in and buy them from whatever concert passed. They keep prints there. Uh, Psychedelic shop, I don't recall going in that much, but the print mint I loved is actually that and the Russian bakeries. I mean, Haight-Ashbury, before uh, (laughs) the counterculture moved in, was for some reason, I have never really investigated this, a lot of Russian families lived there. It was like many areas of big cities. You know, there might be in Chicago, a Polish area or a Hungarian area. Well, the Russian area was Haight-Ashbury. And they later moved way out into the into the Richmond. But uh, at the time, there were lots of these Russian bakeries. And so you'd get these pierogies. And it, uh, gosh, taking having a joint and then going into one of these Russian delis and getting a few pierogies. It was really this incredible taste treat. Your, your mouth would just explode with this meat and onion and whatever spices they'd put in it. So I, I, I don't know. I have these odd memories from back there. just what attracted me. Uh, there was also this tiny smoke shop that was right at the corner of uh, Hate and Masonic. Very tiny little shop, no bigger than, gosh, my little room here, that had all these foreign cigarettes. And back then, you know, we're still people were still smoking tobacco and we were and it was a big thing amongst many people to go in and get these really odd cigarettes from uh, uh, Turkey or from England. And we'd walk around and smoke our what was one when was the Balkan Sobrania it was a uh, big thing. So but I just don't somehow I don't remember the psychedelic shop. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because it was so prominent. I don't know. But <laughs> the print man, those little bait Russian bakeries and the and the tobacco shop. And then there was a nice theater. There was the straight theater where a lot of events happened. Uh, there wasn't much uh, music there because it had a sloped floor. Uh, you know, it's typical theater with rays, so it's not very good for dancing. But there were a lot of events that happened there. It's just a hole in the ground right now. But um, Did you ever make it to any of the acid tests? No, that was before my time. Before your time. That was, those were all really early 66 when I was still in, in high school. I would love to have, but... Um, 
No, I didn't. I didn't get there till late '66. Well, that that brings, I guess, to uh, to you know, one of the great counterculture you know people, which we mentioned earlier, which is Owsley Stanley, and you know, obviously Melissa Cargill, who kind of worked with Stanley. But uh, but I think all the LSD that was supplied to the acid tests, you know, came from those guys. And I know, as you said, you know, they're definitely the more um, notorious of, of the guys out there, along with Griggs down in Laguna Beach and, you know, a handful of others that were, were doing their thing. But between sort of white lightning in the north and orange sunshine in the south, you know, they're certainly turning on, you know, millions of people at that time. Um, you know, I know Alzi had a, sort of an oversized reputation, but, you know, as we talked about kind of in the preamble to the show, it did give rise to, you know, a handful of bands uh, eulogizing Stanley uh, over the years, whether it was Steely Dan with Kid Charlemagne or it was with the Grateful Dead writing LSD Millionaire, or LSD Millionaire, excuse me, after the headline came out, after he got busted, that he was the LSD Millionaire. So, Dan, maybe you've got a quick clip of, uh, of that one for us to listen to, and we'll, we'll jump back into kind of the bigger names of the psychedelic movement. <laughs> Yeah, that that song is just uh, you know too funny. That's just the boys having a little fun at Owsley's expense. LSD millionaire and becomes LSD millionaire, and um, you know, look, uh, he can always say that the dead wrote a song about him, and that's that's no small no no small nothing. But uh, I, I think it just speaks to the fact that you know the dead were having such a good time and you know they were at that stage of their careers you know we've talked about it before when they were living in the hate they were you know bobby was throwing water balloons on cops they were young jokesters they were out having a good time and um you know they were fun enough that they could pick up on something like that and quickly turn it around and you know make it they only played it twice uh both in 1966 and i think this one is a version from the uh the matrix theater on december 1st 66 they uh, the first time they ever played it was, I want to say, at, at, at one of the festival, one of the trip uh, acid festivals on um, acid tests on maybe October 31st at the California Hall, if I remember correctly. Um, and then they played it this time on December 1st at the Matrix, and that was pretty much it. I think uh, Phil played it once or twice. Further might have played it once. Uh, J-Rad, I think, may have picked up on it once. But, um, you know, I mean, it's one of those tunes that's a lot of fun, and it speaks to the moment, certainly. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's definitely a really, really fun time, uh, you know, for, for the Grateful Dead and definitely having some fun at, at the time, their sound man's expense. So uh, super, super cool. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I love when people, you know, sort of covertly, like just the way, you know, we started off with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Anyone that was paying attention, obviously, understood the acronym was, it was LSD. Um, but there was a handful of psychedelic songs out there that were, you know, largely sort of... Um, uh, couched in, in something else to so as not to give away the, the true intent of the song, but very, very cool. Well, you could be talking about Puff the Magic Dragon, right? Except uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, they came out years later and said, no, no, it had nothing to do with marijuana. And I'm like, oh, man, either you're lying or you're missing out on a great link in here, guys. But I, I would not be telling people that now. That's You're blowing a great marketing opportunity. But 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 doesn't I mean you tell us well this really speaks to the time right I mean nowadays we just take it for granted here in in Illinois all of a sudden you can walk around and if somebody's smoking a joint you're not supposed to be smoking on the street but it, you know like the psilocybin out west I mean marijuana in a lot of places including here has been decriminalized to the point where I think for the average police officer it's just not worth the time and trouble to issue somebody a citation for smoking a joint in public and then have to show up in court and the judge is just going to slap them on the wrist anyway but people oh my goodness I, I was taking the l today i was at wrigley field today you smell marijuana everywhere it's in the air you know, as though oh my goodness this is some you know some you know brand new realization and yet 
Hence, I go back to what I say before. I can only imagine that, you know, 10 years from now, if instead of marijuana, you know, you're getting on the L and the guy next to you is just taking a good dose of psilocybin, you know, and all of a sudden you talk about getting involved in a strange conversation. It could really, could really get weird. But, you know, I, I guess from what you're telling us during this time period, when you were living in the hate, that's kind of what it was like. People were just very open in their use and it was not uncommon what to walk down the street and see somebody coming right at you who was having a conversation with um, somebody. Yeah. Now and then I, I don't, I don't think we saw as many people out uh, a single alone. I mean, there was a, a caretaking back then. Often people, uh, part of the folk wisdom, uh, if someone's going to take acid, they would do it with somebody or in a group and maybe there'd be a group and there wouldn't be a monitor. There wouldn't be somebody staying safe or or you could have someone I, I went to a concert once and a friend of mine wanted to drop before and i uh, actually this is sort of an interesting story <laughs> two girls and i who lived near uh and a very close friend of mine were all going to go to a concert and my friend decided he was going to drop just right before which pissed off one of the girls because he thought we were going to the four of us were going to have thing, two and two, whatever. It's going to be nice concert, smoke some joints, go out and have some fun. But Tony, that was my my friend, uh, that's actually, that's what I called him in the book because I used this scene in the book. He wanted to drop. So he took a full dose of acid. And then we were going to the Fillmore West, uh, which was on Van Ness, Van Ness at uh, Market. Uh, it was a larger theater than the original Fillmore at Fillmore and Geary. And... Um, I couldn't find any place to park, so I'm driving all around. Finally, I find a place to park. And when we get out, there's a series of low buildings with just glass fronts, about one story tall, that run well, maybe half the block. And the lights are on inside, and there's just all kinds of pipes and vessels inside. And then you look up and see it's a plastics factory. And my friend, who had dropped just before we got in the car to drive to the concert, which we were going from the hate to not very far, but he's, it's coming on, and he gets out, and he looks at all these pipes, and he can't go anywhere. He's just pipes. <laughs> and I remember the girls were kind of pissed because they didn't want to stay. I had to give them the tickets. And also I had to give them my joints because I didn't want to be babysitting my friend and have the cops harass me for any reason. And so I, I was stuck with my friend in front of this pipe factory for a long time. <laughs> but, you know, look, we've all been there, you know, after a dead show, everybody walks out and one guy sees something <laughs> like, okay, come on, man. No, 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 dude, look, no, no, really. It's okay. No, no, man, you're missing. It's right there. No, you don't see. And I mean, those are, those are classic moments, right? When you're, when you're with your buddies and that kind of thing is going down as long as you don't have anybody chasing you or anything. But, um, yeah, it, it, it invites in a, uh, a sense of fun and playfulness that I think, you know, by the time we all get, you know, into our late high school and early college years, you know, there's a sense that those, that almost has to be behind you now, you know, now, now, we're, now you're having fun on a much larger level on a, on an adult level. And I think that, you know, this kind of help, it allows that playfulness side to come out a little bit and, 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 and keep things on a, on a much more even keel overall. And, um, you know, all I can say is uh, that your 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 experience was uh, drastically different from mine at that age, and uh, for most of the people that I know, and I and I think that it's uh, absolutely wonderful to have uh, had an opportunity to to grow up in in that experience and, and kind of away from the, uh, the the you know the culture that was being spoon fed to the rest of us, where all of this was being acknowledged, but only on a level that suggested, no, you don't want to do it; it's bad. You know, this is. They're all silly. Just that California, leave that alone. Don't, you know, and, you know, it, it took me uh, going off to the University of Michigan and doing a little experimenting on my own to, you know, finally uh, see the light, if you will, or the truth or whatever you want to call it. But uh, it, it's here and I think it's great. And, you know, we, we talked to uh, a lot of people on the show, you know, who were very key and instrumental in the early days of the marijuana movement. And then uh, some even more recently who helped pass a lot of the legalization uh, legislation that we see. And, you know, there's kind of a sense of hats off to them because of, of what they've done to do to move marijuana and, and all of cannabis forward. Um, but by the same token, I think it's only fair to acknowledge those of you in the psychedelic era who, you know, helped bring a little bit of normalcy to it, to the point where uh, it, it wasn't just snuffed out, right? They didn't just come into San Francisco and say, that's it. We're shutting this down. 
uh, we should we never should have let this cat out of the bag and now we're gonna you know we're gonna cut it off uh, people learned the recipe and at that point uh, you know they could make it go forward and and there was enough of a demand that many people could do it enough people could do it that it, it, it grew into you know the, the culture that it is today that you know I, I think that people who participate in the psychedelic culture whether it's just you know once in a blue moon gram of mushrooms or you know i like to take my acid on a regular basis you know there's there's people all the way in between um and more power to all of them because i think that anybody who tries it demonstrates that they're you know willing to take a step away from everything that they've been taught and everything that people tell them the world should be and you know the, the, that that's kind of you know a little bit like aldous huxley right you're you're, you're really unlocking these doors of perception and taking a step through and a lot of people in our society, a lot of well-learned people, famous people, uh, educated people won't have anything to do with it and are, and are, and are generally scared by it. And I, and I often wonder if that speaks more to human nature uh, that some people can accept the educated world, if you will, but it's much harder for them to have to be able to spend any bit of time focusing inward and anybody who's taken any type of a psychedelic drug knows that at some point along the way, you will spend some period of time focusing inward, which I think for a lot of the uh, healthcare professionals is is the very thing about it that makes it so attractive uh, as a microdosable type of treatment. Yes, absolutely. I, I am uh, really thrilled with the microdosing movement. It's it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, in fact, I've been microdosing again uh, recently myself. I think it's uh, has great value. Um, it's calming, <laughs> gives you a little more focus. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy it. Um, I'm surprised. I never thought that that would be the case. I mean, back in the day when we were taking mega doses <laughs> and then I got out of it. So, well, but I'll tell you, I think that that's for people, you know, certainly my age, and I guess I'm a few years younger than you, but not too many. Um, our experiences, the first time we took LSD was, boy, we took LSD and it was really, we were out there, you know. Uh, first time we took mushrooms, boy, we were really out there. Maybe over time you learn to gauge a little bit, but eventually we all got to points in life where it just wasn't sustainable. You know, you have kids, you have a job, you have everything. And the opportunities just didn't, let, at least in my experience, lend themselves uh, as readily as they might. But now we get to a point in life where kids are all grown up, kids are moved out of the house. Um, you know, we're, we're a little bit farther along in our careers. Some of us control our own destiny. Uh, you know, some of us are just very satisfied with where we're at and, you know, are, 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 are looking for things to do. And I, it, it, it was kind of an amazing experience in the last year and a half. I did a lot of traveling and seeing music with a, a good group of friends of mine. And although uh, many of them weren't necessarily interested in doing it themselves, everyone's always really supportive. And, you know, it's a group that you can be very comfortable doing it with. And, um, it, it just makes all the difference in the world for me. It, it, it puts me in a much happier frame of mind. It, it lets me really enjoy the moment and not get lost in everything else that's going on. And most importantly, if I'm going to see a dead show or dead related show or anything like that for a guy my age, it gives me a little bit of energy to be able to stand up and dance for a few minutes. <laughs> well, I have great hopes for, for psilocybin. I mean, it's very, very much, you know, much more accessible drug. The chances, I mean, I think there is so much propaganda put out back in the day about the horrors of really bad trips of LSD. I think most of those never happened. I think it was just propaganda put out by the government. In fact, there was a book. Wait, are you saying are you saying that Art Linkletter's daughter didn't really jump out of a ten story ten story window or something when she was on LSD? Uh, well, she may have, but the reasons for that may have something may have been something totally different. Uh, in fact, there's oh there's a, there was a review of a book. I should have it on the tip of my tongue about a woman who wrote books about people having bad trips and their lives ruined. And it turned out it was all false. She created it all. There's actually a book exposing her. But but getting back to the point, I think the chances of having a bad trip on, on psilocybin are really minimal. Seriously, unless you took an extraordinary dose. I mean, like, that's extraordinary. It really minimal. And I think as, as psilocybin is more and more legalized across the country. I think it'll just move more in the mainstream and it may have greater value in our society by getting people to be more aware and having some more, having some empathy. I mean, it's one thing we're certainly lacking in this country now, this empathy. Uh, and I see that both on the left and the right. I mean, I, I don't want to get into politics here, but uh, we, we could sure use some mega dose of empathy in this country. I agree with that. And, and, but look, you know, there is a, there is uh 
you know, come back. It's not just the fact that, you know, the next generation is, is getting tuned in, but like you say, the municipalities are, are now uh, making it possible and open and, and then all of a sudden you have manufacturers out there who say, what the heck this, you know, I'm just like the marijuana guys, you know, 10 years before Colorado went legal, but they were the ones who were out there opening up those dispensaries and, and really taking everything out there. And now, now all of a sudden you, uh, there's companies making, you know, infused chocolate bars with psilocybin and it, it's, you know, it, 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 they're putting it in a format and they're making it available to people again in a way where you don't have to feel like, oh, I'm eating these mushrooms and I can't let anybody see me or boy, I really remember them tasting really bad or right. Whatever they, it, it, they're making it accessible and, and available so that it, it's not really that hard. And I remember two things really fast from the Grateful Dead world. One, uh, reading a book where Jerry Garcia said later in life that he, he would do uh, mushrooms at least once a year just to blow the pipes clean. And then uh, his, his roadie, uh, Big Steve Parrish, uh, sometime early on in the pandemic, uh, talking about how it, with everybody, you know, having such negative uh, uh, mindsets, you know, being locked in their home and with all the stuff that was going on in the early onset of the pandemic, how important it would be for everybody to have a chance to do mushrooms and how helpful it could be to the population as a whole and really get our whole population through this period of time if people could use that, which, you know, for him and the dad, you know, was a proven way to be able to snap yourself out of these doldrums and and really self make yourself energetic and, and, and upbeat. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a surprise that many of us uh, were finding our love for the Grateful Dead and our interest in psychedelics right at the same time you know they, they they really went together very nicely i think that's one of the greatest achievements of the dead almost on par with their um, music almost on a par with their music i mean they were they were there with further they were what i think you were mentioning as well back in the day they were working on the acid test they were performing many of the venues where acid was spread around uh free to people their role in promoting the psych psychedelic movement is just extraordinary. I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't say it's almost as good as much of their music, but it's certainly another great achievement of theirs. And and Ken, and uh, Osley too. I think uh, I I the chemist I work with. In fact, when I first started working with them, <laughs> they said I asked them about Osley. That, what was their relation? They said he's great for the psychedelic movement. But whatever he does, don't do it. We're low key. We are low key, Paul. <laughs> but he was definitely very great for the movement. How else did he get spread so widely? Right, 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 right. No, that's very true too. Well, let me ask you: in, in the midst of all of this, did you ever have a chance to meet any of the members of the Grateful Dead? No. Well, I, I walked by. I remember a couple of times their house. Their house was uh, not too far from mine. I remember seeing them there, but um, yeah, I was never one to. Um, I don't know. How should I say? No, I, I didn't walk over and say, hi, I'm Paul. <laughs> but yeah, I saw them around. You didn't bump into them at the local supermarket or something? <laughs> no, the local supermarket would have been the Safeway at the end of Stanion. <laughs> but no, I didn't see them there. I saw Janis Joplin much more often for some reason. I don't know why. I saw her frequently. I saw in your book you made mention of seeing her drive by in a car. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I saw that was actually I remember that scene and I put it in, but I saw her many other times. I don't know why just around. Maybe she was more striking and maybe I'm more attracted to women. I mean, that's maybe part of it as well. So I, I noticed them uh, more, but uh, I didn't ever I think I ever saw Grace Slick. Uh, I saw a number of the in fact, uh, I think it was Jorma that lived right near me for a while. He had a, a Citroen. Uh, whichever the members of, of the airplane had a Citroen uh, lived right near me, and I saw him quite frequently. I think it was Jorma, but um, I'm not sure. No, the, the hate then was, oh, well, the other thing we never mentioned, the other thing that was really vibrant at hate back then, the farm workers, you know, one of the first unions that were really uh, trying to help the farm workers was the United Farm Workers, Cesar Chavez. And their main protest was at the Safeway on Hate Street at Stanyon. And so the farm workers were out there every day. So there's there was this political kind of energy that happened in the hate. And it was right, right at that area where the other side of Stanion was where the diggers would have their free soup kitchen. So, I mean, there was so much going on in the hate beyond just uh, you think of psychedelics and free love. We had the farm workers there with all their signs and uh, um, they're talking with you, talking with people, uh, don't buy grapes. And then you go across, and they're the diggers serving up uh, hot food. 
you know, it was there was a lot going on beyond just music and drugs. Uh, let me ask you, Paul. Um, we're going to run out of time here soon, but I, I want to just kind of swing back to the book a little bit. Just kind of synthesize, if you can. What 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 what's the story about? What's the message you're you're given in the book? Well, I, d- I don't think there's a big uh, moral message or anything. The biggest message I want to give with the book is: here's what it felt like to live in Haight Ashbury then. And I, the vehicle for that is a coming-of-age story, and I certainly model it <laughs> on my own life. So, and the character, the main character, resembles me a lot, but it's not exact. I didn't do everything the main character did, and there are things I did that he didn't do. But it's modeled on my life, so you can see the arc of somebody struggling, getting some proficiency, learning a lot, and then having having a resolution and maturing through the process. And I just happened to place it in one of the more iconic periods in the United States history, the 60s, and the place, Haight-Ashbury, which was the psychedelic center of the universe at the time. So I I think it's a very compelling story just for the place. But I think I've read a lot of books about the time, Um, not everyone for sure, so I may be missing one. But most of the books don't have a pace. They don't move along quickly. And it was such a time of energy and people moving and doing things and dancing. People were just sitting around and doing nothing. Well, now and then, I guess you got quite stoned, but there was a lot of energy and movement. Uh, and I tried to convey that in the book. Um, I think I succeeded. Let me ask you this. Where can our listeners go to find it? Where, do you have a, a website or somewhere where they can go and, and find the book? Well, I have a website that's very simple. It's my name, pauljustison.com, which is P. A-U-L-J-U-S-T-I-S-O-N.com. But also, it's published by a real publisher, a small one. So, you know, we don't get a lot of press because it's a small publisher and they don't have a lot of funds. But it's available anywhere books are sold. If you go into your local books, and that's one of the things I wanted. I love bookstores. So you go into your local bookstore. If they don't have it, the terms for it are good and the bookstore will be glad to order it. So that's what I prefer. You know, obviously, they're the major e-tailers and it's there, but I'd like to support local bookstores. So that's what I'd be happy. Walk into a bookstore and ask for it. Excellent. 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 Well, Paul, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, These stories have been great. Um, uh, you know, for guys like uh, Rob and I, who, you know, came of age a few years after you did, but, you know, found the fun along the way, uh, it, it, it's really kind of reaffirming and uh, entertaining to hear what came before us. And, and, you know, from the guys who had boots on the ground, you know, back at, uh, you know, really ground zero when it was all just taking off. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's nice to be able to find people such as yourself who weren't just there, but who were willing to stop and tell the story with us and, and obviously in more detail in your book. And uh, thank you for your time. It was great to have you with us today. And thank you. And if I can just add, it was a pleasure being with you. You guys also have this depth of knowledge. And a couple of times I thought, wait a minute, what, did, did I remember that? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's fun to talk with people who know about it as well just as much as as you cook a good meal to have people who appreciate good food eat it. Uh, So I really appreciated you having me, and I had a good time here. Well, if if nothing else, Paul, we are students of history, and uh, when you you take your psychedelics as seriously as we do, uh, (laughs) always fun to have people on that that know the subject matter and have written about the subject matter to allow nerds like us to ask the questions that we do. But, uh, you know, you've, you've nailed multiple different subject matters that are close to our heart, being the city of San Francisco, you know, the music of San Francisco, the, uh, the, the psychedelic movement, and the late 60s Haight-Ashbury. So between those four, you've, you've created the perfect storm for Larry and I to ask questions today. And uh, we greatly appreciate your participation in allowing us to, to sort of rapid fire at you, uh, you know, fun things about stuff that we hold dear to our, to our hearts. So thanks so much for joining us and, and glad you had a great Thanksgiving and, and thanks so much for stopping in. All right. Thank you for everyone listening on our way out. We do have a little more Grateful Dead music for you. Um, This is a uh, uh, another example of uh, the Grateful Dead interpreting the great uh, psychedelic songwriters of the time, the Beatles, uh, the Dead from Cal Expo in May, uh, May 19th, 1992. Um, I'm sure Alex was there and uh, they uh, I was there. Rob was there. And that this to me, this may be the greatest psychedelic song of all time. 
Uh, and uh, certainly the Beatles wrote it and made it famous. But boy, the dead really capture it. Uh, tomorrow never knows. So enjoy, everyone. Uh, we will talk to you soon. And enjoy your cannabis response. And your psychedelics. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.